Even though the book of Jude was written nearly 2,000 years ago, the church today still faces similar challenges in the 21st century. This often overlooked book of the Bible hits on perennial topics such as false teachers, the divinity of Christ, and our perseverance as Christians. My guest today is Matt Harmon, and in this interview, he walks us through the book of Jude to explain its meaning and relevance for God's people today. Exploring the book's historical and biblical context, Matt explains how the key themes of this short, confusing letter apply to us, giving Christians comfort and motivation in the face of serious challenges and opposition to the gospel. Matt Harmon is a professor of New Testament studies at Grace College and Theological Seminary. He was previously on staff with Crew for eight years and is the author of numerous books, including The God Who Judges and Saves, A Theology of Second Peter and Jude from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. It's good to be with you again. Yeah, we were together a couple years ago now, and uh, we had a conversation about your first book with Crossway, Asking the Right Questions, a book about how to study the Bible. Yeah. And uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking about another book that you've written with Crossway on the book of Jude. And um, I think for many Christians, the book of Jude is a bit of an enigma. Uh, It's short, which I think is nice for a lot of Christians, but it's also filled with some stuff that I think many of us find confusing at times and maybe even a little bit bizarre uh, in some ways. Have you ever felt that way about the book of Jude? Oh, absolutely. And I think when it comes to Jude, he seems to be working with uh, writing to a group of people that obviously share the same sort of cultural experiences mm. and background that we don't share today as yeah. modern readers. So it can feel very much like you enter it as an outsider. Yeah. And that strangeness can be a little off-putting or even just a little unsettling of, mm. I don't know what to do with this. He's would, referencing things that, that for us are not immediately in our minds. Exactly. It, it would be like if, if someone was visiting from visiting the United States from, let's say, India, and we're talking about American football, about our favorite NFL team or college football team. Uh, what is your favorite NFL team, by the way? NFL team? Oh, gosh. I don't know that I have a strict favorite. I'm more of a college football okay. guy. But, yeah, I, I just enjoy watching NFL football. It's kind of nice to have a, a sport to watch that I'm not that emotionally invested in. <laughs> that doesn't ruin my day if my team loses, Yeah, uh, unlike Saturdays with uh, with college football. But, you know, we if you're part of our American culture, most people are probably at least at some level familiar with with football. For someone coming from the country of India, where for them, even the word football refer, would refer to soccer, probably, most yeah. naturally, it can those sort of cultural conversations can seem very confusing, or even just popular movies that we would take for granted that we could say a line from that people would catch the reference. Someone from a different culture would say, that didn't really mean anything mm. to me. And you have that same kind of dynamic with the book of Jude for us today, that if you're not as familiar with some of the Jewish literature and the Jewish background that, that Jude assumes, it can seem a little strange to us. Yeah, yeah. So speak to us a little bit about that context uh, in which this short letter was written. Uh, first, who was Jude? What do we know about him? And then who was he writing this letter to? Where were they? Uh, when was this letter written? Anything there you can share? Yeah, so Jude introduces himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. 
So if that most naturally is to be taken as a brother of James, the one who wrote the letter of James, Mm. and James was a half-brother of Jesus, Mm. so that would make Jude a half-brother of Jesus as well. And it's fascinating that even though he has that sort of family relationship to Jesus, he chooses to introduce himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Mm. To think about him growing up in the same household as Jesus, and at some point coming to the realization, this is God in the flesh. Now, I'm not saying he came to that realization when he was living in the same household as Jesus, but eventually coming to that realization, having some sort of conversion experience like that is fascinating to me that even though he had that kind of relationship, he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And then when it comes to to who he's writing to, it's a very generalized address to those, sorry, verse one, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So he doesn't give a specific geographical location of where these listeners, or where these listeners, where these readers are. And as a result, I think it's probably written for Jewish believers living somewhere in the land of Israel, Mm. because they seem to be pretty familiar with the Old Testament and also even some Jewish literature that's outside of the Old Testament. And the most natural context for that would have been somewhere living in the land of Israel. Yeah. Okay. And do we have any sense for when it was written? Can Can we discern that from anything that he says in the book? Yeah, it's it's pretty wide open in terms of when you when you look at how different scholars interpret and kind of place that. Some see it as early as the early 50s AD, so making it one of our earliest New Testament letters. Right, because Jesus, he would have died and raised e- again. Either 30 or 33 AD are the sort of the two traditional yeah. dates. So so potentially just over a decade or so after his resurrection. Yeah, yeah, so we're we're talking very early within the early Christian movement. Other scholars place it much later, towards like 90 AD, towards the end of the first century. I personally think that he is probably writing somewhere in that in in the 50s because I think it's most likely that Peter when writing 2nd Peter is using what he finds in Jude and adapting that material for his own purposes. Mm. And based on church history, we know that Peter was martyred sometime in the mid-60s. So to me, that kind of sets a a sort of uh, end point for when that would be written. So if you backtrack that a little bit, somewhere I would say in the... In the 50s or maybe early 60s is when Jude probably wrote this. It's fascinating. There's almost this investigative work that kind of goes into trying to deduce when these things could have been done. Absolutely. It's all about piecing together what evidence we have and trying to make best guesses because oftentimes that's what we're we're left with. Yeah. So um, in verses 3 to 4, I think we get a glimpse into why Jude wrote this short letter. I wonder if you can speak to that. What was going on, or you know, if we, even if we don't know the exact location uh, or you know, city that these uh, recipients were in, uh, what's the broader situation that Jude is writing this letter into? Yeah, so the primary situation is that you have what we would refer to as, as false teachers, 
Jude calls them in verse 4, certain people. (laughs) I love that just sort of generic reference, certain people. And it's sort of implied, you all know who we're talking about. Yeah. Is that meant to be like a, is that like a rhetorical sort of... uh slight against them in some way? Like why why doesn't he list them more specifically? I, I think it could be. It's it's almost, I think part of it is because as he's going to show in the rest of this short letter, he's going to use all these examples of false teaching throughout redemptive history. And it's almost like he's saying, this is just the latest version of a certain type of person. Mm. So that it, in one sense, it's not all that crucial the specific identity of these people. It's the fact that they're part of a line of false teaching that goes back all the way back into the Old Testament. Yeah, so this is not a new phenomenon. Correct, yes. So I think that's part of why he he doesn't go out of his way to more specifically identify Mm. them. That's interesting. But he talks about them as they've crept in unnoticed, so that would suggest that they gave... the appearance of being believers, at least initially, and only over time has their deviation from yeah. the truth of the gospel shown up. And that feels like a theme that uh, is repeated throughout the New Testament, this idea that false teachers are often wolves in sheep's clothing, that they're, yeah. they're hard to identify at times. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so th- jumping into to verse 5, before we get into some examples of these false teachers, uh, in verse 5, he says that Jesus, uh, referring to Jesus, saved a people out of the land of Egypt. And right there is, I think, when things start to feel a little bit different than we might expect, referring to Jesus and playing that role of almost, it seems like the Old Testament describes as Moses and Joshua. Those would be the people that we would see there. So what's going on in that case? Yeah, I think that what Jude is doing is he is looking back at the Exodus event, and he is seeing that ultimately it's the Lord who was delivering his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he is looking at, well, who do we know that the Lord is based on the clearest revelation of who the Lord is? And that's the incarnate Jesus, the, the Son of God. So I think he's, in one sense, retroactively looking back and saying, well, yes, since Jesus is the one who saves us, there is some sense in which he was the one who saved Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. And he's, he's stressing the continuity hmm. of, our, of, of what God has done throughout redemptive history, that, that God is the one who saves Israel rescues his people. And he's doing that to establish this common ground so that we as believers today can look back at Israel's history Mm. and see it as instructive for our life as followers of Jesus today. Yeah. It strikes me that this is perhaps one of the most, uh, I don't know if it's considered this, but it seems like one of the most clear indications of Jesus's divinity in the New Testament, where it's, it's so clearly directly associating him with Yahweh in yes. the Old Testament. It, it certainly is. Now, there is a, a textual variant issue there where some manuscripts have Jesus, some manuscripts have Lord, and so there is some scholarly debate as to mm. which of those is the original word that Jude himself wrote. I think, based on my own look at the evidence that uh, the ESV is on the right track, mm. that the original reading was, in fact, Jesus 
as Jesus as the one saving his people out of out of Egypt. Yeah, it's pretty amazing to think that if you're correct that the author Jude here is indeed another half brother of Jesus. To think of him growing up to some extent alongside Jesus, knowing him in that personal, familial way, and then coming to this realization at some point that Jesus was the God behind the Exodus, which is yes. such a this the foundational event in Jewish history. Absolutely, it, it must have been a pretty remarkable and you know stunning kind of realization. Yeah, and and it seems most likely to me that it probably took the resurrection to sort of clinch that. There there seem to be indicators in the life and ministry of Jesus that his family was at best uncertain about him. They, you know, there's, there's indications where they, they kind of think, maybe Jesus has lost his mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As he's going around and teaching and saying these things. And yet, after the resurrection, suddenly you have his brothers all on board when it comes to Yes, he is who he said he was. Mm. And to me, it seems like the resurrection was probably the the sort of definitive clinching moment of pieces coming together and putting all those things. And I agree. I think there must have been some remarkable sort of looking back at experiences growing up in the same household and just sort of putting pieces together and having that sort of jaw-dropping moment of that this explains so much yeah, about yeah. the the sort of in one sense the strangeness of your brother like. yeah yeah <laughs> so let's keep going then yeah. into more strangeness because i think you know so we, we kind of get verse five and then we go right into verse six and it starts to get even more sort of uh bizarre and, and hard to understand what jude is trying to tell us yeah verse six goes and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then he keep, goes on from there. But what angels is he referring to? And what's this What's this event that he's referring to about not staying in their own positions of authority? I think the most likely explanation is that Jude is referring back to what's recorded in Genesis 6, where you have the admittedly kind of cryptic story of the sons of God taking the daughters of men Mm. to be their wives and producing children from that. And there's been plenty of debate throughout uh, the centuries as to what, how to best interpret that expression, sons of God. Is that referring to angels? Is it referring to descendants from the line of Seth? That was the line of promise. And it seems like pretty consistent line of interpretation in Jewish literature was to take these as angelic beings. Mm. And this is one of those areas where it just seems like, I don't know that we know how best to understand how all that fits together. Yeah, because the the story, the the Jewish understanding of that story is that angels like married Mm -hmm. uh, human women. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. And then produced offspring that are referred to as the Nephilim, these sort of almost giant-like offspring. And again, this is one of those moments where it's, this is part of the strangeness of, we hear that and we're like, that just doesn't make sense to us because that just doesn't seem possible or even just in the realm of our conceptual framework. Yeah. So that that just reinforces some of the strangeness. Uh, And that story was picked up in Jewish literature 
and talked about in ways that basically indicate God bringing judgment upon those angels, casting them into darkness, binding them into chains. So Jude seems to be dependent on looking back at Genesis 6, but doing so informed by some of these other Jewish writings that interpret it in that way. So what's the purpose of him bringing that up here in this case? And maybe also speak to the the same question for why he mentioned Jesus and delivering people out of Egypt. It seems like in in that example, his, his point is actually that final phrase, and afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. Well, why is he referencing these two events? I think that it is part of his larger program to exhort his readers to continue to persevere in the true apostolic faith, and that that path of perseverance is the path that will lead to their ultimate rescue on the last day, and that these examples of people who did not persevere or went astray, they focus on rejecting boundaries and authority. And mm. that's that's a picture of these false teachers that he's trying to help his readers know how to respond to, yeah. that they are going beyond the boundaries that God has set both morally and theologically. And this is part of the reason why Jude is trying to help you see that when you transgress the boundaries that God puts in place for our good and for our benefit— it ends up leading to destruction. Hmm. Uh, so another big example of that he offers, that he cites, that again is probably going to feel somewhat foreign to most of us, is in verse 9. Um, we read about the archangel Michael disputing with the devil, uh, arguing or, or wrestling or fighting with the devil yeah. about the body of Moses. Yeah. What in the world is that all about? <laughs> yes. So th- that's a, a story that's not found in the Bible, yeah. so just to so be clear. Uh, unlike the Genesis 6 one where we think we know what he's kind of referring to, mm-hmm. even if it's vague, yes. it's, we at least can find it in Scripture itself. This is, yes. this is not like that. Correct. So this is a story that's found in Jewish literature that dates from just before, in in the centuries before the time of Jesus. And the basic idea of of, of this story is that when Moses dies, which that the actual event is described in Deuteronomy 34, that there is this dispute between the archangel Michael and Satan over the body of Moses and who gets to have it, essentially. Mm. And according to this Jewish tradition, there's this argument back and forth between Michael and, and, and Satan over this. And the point, sort of the punchline of Jude telling this story is there in verse 9, he says that Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And Jude's point in telling this story is less about the sort of speculative, how do we put together that story? It's more of even someone as great as the archangel Michael, who you would think would have the authority to maybe issue a direct rebuke to Satan, Mm. defers to the Lord's ultimate authority and will not step out on his own and exercise his own great amazing authority as an archangel, (laughs) he himself even still defers to the Lord and his 
statement of judgment mm. and his his announcement of judgment. So it's safe to assume in, in whatever was going on in this confrontation, the understanding of uh, Jude and his hearers would have been that Michael was was representing God. He was in the right, and Satan is clearly not the not doing the Correct. right thing. And yet, even with that, that he's saying that uh, Michael knew his place and didn't over overstate yes, things. Absolutely, and that and that's part of his rebuke to these false teachers of you you seem to be assuming for yourself levels of authority and freedom to transgress boundaries that God himself has put into place and um that is always the path of destruction if pursued consistently yeah so this is maybe tangential to Jude's point here in referencing that but i think it's a question that many of us would come to mind and it's namely if this story, which is not found in anywhere else in the Old Testament, it's found in extra-biblical literature that we are aware of, uh, but if this story is referenced here in the New Testament by an inspired writer like Jude, does that mean that we, one, should believe that it did indeed happen this way? Is he, is Jude teaching us that this is a true historical event? And two, if so, should we then embrace these other writings uh, that we, where we find that story as scripture in some way? I think in answer to your first question, uh, I would say the answer is yes. Now you always have to look at what is the biblical author saying when using this event and how is he presenting it? There's every indication here that Jude is presenting this as this happened. Mm -hmm. And so it would seem in this particular case that this story coming from a non-inspired Jewish writing that Jude, as an inspired writer of Scripture, is able to see that this is, in fact, a true story, a true event that he can refer to in the course of his, in the course of his letter. Now, there's a sense in which I think it's very similar to in Titus chapter 1, Paul quotes a Greek poet about the nature of the Cretans. And then in Acts 17, Paul quotes a different Greek poet Mm. to make a true statement. And in essence, he's saying these are true statements without making the blanket endorsement. Therefore, these Greek poets in what what, uh, writing I'm pulling that from, well, that's inspired. Yeah, we we intuitively have a whole category in our own day-to-day lives of we can read a book or read a statement that is indeed true and not still think book is inspired in, in the same sense scripture Absolutely. Is. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's what, what we see Jude doing here. And he's going to do it again in verse 14 and 15, where he refers to Enoch, where he quotes from a writing that, that we've come to know as First Enoch. And so I think he again is saying, this is a true statement from this source without automatically endorsing, therefore, everything in that source is, in fact, true Mm. and correct. Mm. Do you think there's value in Christians reading some of these other other extra-biblical texts that nevertheless have a long tradition within Jewish or Christian, you know, circles? Absolutely. I think as long as you recognize the, the value of it, in a certain way, meaning it's not on the same level as Scripture. Mm. Everything must be evaluated and judged based on what we know is true from Scripture itself. I think 
we live in a time where we have so many resources available to us that are that are so helpful in our understanding of the Christian life, helping us understand doctrine and how to live as Christians and those sorts of things. And those are good and valuable, but we'd be misreading them if we put them on the same level of authority as the text of Scripture itself. And, you know, even if you think about a study Bible, there's a reason there's a line between mm. the text of the Scripture and then the study notes at the bottom. It's, to, it's a visual reminder of what's above the line in the text is the inspired Word of God. What's in the study notes is ideally supposed to be helpful, but it should always be evaluated back against what is we what we know to be true and inspired, and mm. that's the text of Scripture itself. Yeah. So I, I think if we if we approach these kinds of texts with that kind of posture, that we can benefit from them because they do shed light on the sort of conceptual world that the biblical authors lived in and thought in. Yeah, I, I've heard some scholars uh, talk about these two examples in Jude as a uh, as not necess- Jude's not necessarily teaching us that these things did indeed happen, that we should read this, these references to other extra-biblical Jewish literature as he, he's just sort of using these examples to illustrate a point from their own tradition, but not necessarily saying that the, that stuff it really happened. What, do you buy that argument? Does that, uh, does that resonate with you at all, or does it feel like, no, we should, we should really take this as actually historical? I think... Scholars who tend to to reach those conclusions have a good instinct in wanting to preserve the uniqueness of Scripture. However, I I think that ultimately I want to keep looking back at the text and see, is there any indication in the text itself that suddenly we've gone from, you know, the author's talking about these biblical examples, and he's treating them as this happened. Is there anything in the text that now tells me, well, now let me just use an illustration from a, mm. a, a text that we're all kind of familiar with without making any sort of statement about this actually happened. I don't see any any indication where Jude's like, oh, and by the way, here's another example that's not on the same you know sort of historical level as the ones I mentioned before. He just keeps moving along, which to me is an indication that he wants us to see them as things that actually happen. Yeah. So it wouldn't be a situation like, say, a pastor were preaching, and he gives an example from World War II, an illustration from World War II, a story that the congregation would intuitively know actually did happen. And then he could jump right over to some example from the Lord of the Rings, right. where, again, he can assume, because of his context, yes. because of that shared knowledge of and culture, that they're going to get that, oh, yeah, this story is is not true, not real. And this story is, but they both are illustrating a similar point. Right. Yeah. Uh, So the final two verses of this short book, verses 24 and 25, are a really uh, amazing doxology that maybe some people have heard their pastors say at the end of a sermon or a service. Uh, And and sometimes I think we can tend to fly through these doxologies rather than really meditate on what's being said. So I wonder if you could help us slow down a little bit and, and walk us through these two verses. So in verse 24, I'll just read verses 24 and 25, and then I'll comment on them and go back through. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Hmm. So when Jude begins in verse 24 by saying, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, that's catching on to a major theme in the book. In fact, if you go back to chapter chapter one, verse sorry, verse one, to those who or Jude writes, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Or that could also be translated as kept by Jesus Christ. So God is the one who is keeping us, mm. protecting us, preserving us. But then if you jump down to verse 20 and 21, he writes, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So this idea of God keeping us from stumbling, that's a huge encouragement because mm. what he is he's warning about the dangers of false teachers, and that can create this sort of unsettling, oh no, yeah. I, I, could that happen to me? Could I be led astray? And he's reminding them, God is able to preserve you, and the way that he does that is he keeps pointing you back to the truthfulness of the gospel once, to, once for all delivered to the saints, mm. that as you keep clinging to that, that is the means by which God continues to keep you, to preserve you from stumbling so that he can, on the last day, present you blameless before the presence of his glory. And I love this last little part of verse 24, with great joy. So he's pointing them to this hope of the joy that will be there on the last day when there's that sense of relief. Mm. We made it. Yeah, yeah. Through all the struggle, through all the difficulties, through all the hardships, we made it. And now we're in the presence of the one that we've worshiped by faith and not by sight. And that leads into verse 25, where you've got this directed praise towards God himself to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that title, Lord, is important because he's been stressing the authority of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus as our final authority in contrast to these false teachers throughout the, the letter, and that he receives glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And then this last phrase here, before all time and now and forever. So mm, there's yeah. the, the whole scope of eternity. He's going out of his way to emphasize <laughs> this kind of eternal yes timelessness yeah and that he is stressing that we can join into all of creation which already is erupting in praise to god so that when we praise god in the present we're joining into a song that's already ongoing and that one day when he brings us into his presence blameless that's not going to stop. It's only going to intensify our experience of joy in his presence. Mm, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, really it's understandable why, why this is a common doxology to, to read over God's people as a source of encouragement and putting before them the ultimate glory of God 
stretching from before eternity past all the way into eternity future. Mm. Well, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to, to help us to, I, I think, as you said, see this short book that is sometimes confusing to us. It feels a little bit different than we expect, but it is intended to be an encouragement to us to point us back to Jesus. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on today. That was Matt Harmon on the book of Jude. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The God Who Judges and Saves, A Theology of Second Peter and Jude. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off or get the ebook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.